Chapter 13 of The Rover. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Courtney Miller. The Rover by Joseph Conrad. Chapter 13. The motive force of a fixed idea is very great. In the case of Sevilla, it was great enough to launch him down the slope and to rob him from the moment of all caution. He bounded amongst the boulders, using the handle of the stable fork for a staff. He paid no regard to the nature of the ground, till he got a fall and found himself sprawling on his face, while the stable fork went clattering down until it was stopped by a bush. It was this circumstance which saved Peril's prisoner from being caught unawares. Since he had got out of the little cabin, simply because after coming to himself he had perceived it was open, Simons had been greatly refreshed by long drinks of cold water and by his little nap in the fresh air. Every moment he was feeling in better command of his limbs. As to the command of his thoughts, that was coming to him too rather quickly. The advantage of having a very thick skull became evident in the fact that as soon as he had dragged himself out of the cabin, he knew where he was. The next thing he did was to look at the moon, to judge of the passage of time. Then he gave way to an immense surprise at the fact of being alone aboard the Tartane. As he sat with his legs dangling into the open hold, he tried to guess how it came about that the cabin had been left unlocked and unguarded. He went on thinking about this unexpected situation. What could have become of that white-headed villain? Was he dodging about somewhere, watching for a chance to give him another tap on the head? Simons felt suddenly very unsafe sitting there on the afterdeck, in the full light of the moon. Instinct rather than reason suggested to him that he ought to get down into the dark hold. It seemed a great undertaking at first, but once he started he accomplished it with the greatest ease, though he could not avoid knocking down a small spar which was leaning up against the deck. It preceded him into the hold with a loud crash which gave poor Simons an attack of palpitation of the heart. He sat on the keelson of the tartane and gasped, but after a while reflected that all this did not matter. His head felt very big, his neck was very painful, and one shoulder was certainly very stiff. He could never stand up against that old ruffian. What had become of him? Why, he had gone to fetch the soldiers! After that conclusion, Simons became more composed. He began to try to remember things. When he had last seen that old fellow it was daylight, and now, Simons looked up at the moon again. It must be near six bells in the first watch. No doubt the old scoundrel was sitting in a wine shop drinking with the soldiers. They would be here soon enough. The idea of being a prisoner of war made his heart sink a little. His ship appeared to him invested with an extraordinary number of lovable features, which included Captain Vincent and the first lieutenant. He would have been glad to shake hands even with the corporal, a surly and malicious marine acting as master-at-arms of the ship. I wonder where she is now, he thought dismally feeling his distaste for captivity grow with the increase of his strength. It was at this moment that he heard the noise of Sevilla's fall. It was pretty close, but afterwards he heard no voices and footsteps heralding the approach of a body of men. If this was the old ruffian coming back, then he was coming back alone. At once Simon started on all fours for the fore-end of the tartane. He had an idea that ensconced under the foredeck he would be in a better position to parley with the enemy and that perhaps he could find there a handspike or some piece of iron to defend himself with. Just as he had settled himself in his hiding place, Sevilla stepped from the shore onto the afterdeck. 
At the very first glance, Simons perceived that this one was very unlike the man he expected to see. He felt rather disappointed. As Sevilla stood still in full moonlight, Simons congratulated himself on having taken up a position under the foredeck. That fellow, who had a beard, was like a sparrow in body compared with the other, but he was armed dangerously with something that looked to Simons either like a trident or fish grains on a staff. A devil of a weapon that, he thought, appalled. And what on earth did that beggar want on board? What could he be after? The newcomer acted strangely at first. He stood stock still, craning his neck here and there, peering along the whole length of the tartan. Then crossing the deck, he repeated all those performances on the other side. He has noticed that the cabin door is open. He's trying to see where I've got to. He will be coming forward to look for me, said Simons to himself. If he corners me here with that beastly pronged affair, I am done for. For a moment he debated within himself whether it wouldn't be better to make a dash for it and scramble ashore. But in the end he mistrusted his strength. He would run me down for sure, he concluded. And he means no good, that's certain. No man would go about at night with a confounded thing like that if he didn't mean to do for somebody. Savala, after keeping perfectly still, straining his ears for any sound from below where he supposed Lieutenant Royal to be, stooped down to the cabin scuttle and called in a low voice. "'Are you there, Lieutenant?' Simon saw these motions and could not imagine their purport. That excellent able seaman of proved courage in many cutting-out expeditions broke into a slight perspiration. In the light of the moon, the prongs of the fork, polished by much use, shone like silver, and the whole aspect of the stranger was weird and dangerous in the extreme. Who could that man be after but him, himself?' Savala, receiving no answer, remained in a stooping position. He could not detect the slightest sound of breathing down there. He remained in this position so long that Simons became quite interested. "'He must think I am still down there,' he whispered to himself. The next proceeding was quite astonishing. The man, taking up a position on one side of the cuddy-scuttle and holding his horrid weapon as one would a boarding-pike, uttered a terrific whoop and went on yelling in French with such volubility that he quite frightened Simons. Suddenly he left off, moved away from the scuttle, and looked at a loss for what to do next. Anybody who could have then seen Simons' protruded head with his face turned aft would have seen on it an expression of horror. The cunning beast, he thought. If I had been down there, with the row he made, I would have surely rushed on deck, and then he would have had me. Simons experienced the feeling of a very narrow escape, yet it brought not much relief. It was simply a matter of time. The fellow's homicidal purpose was evident. He was bound before long to come forward. Simon saw him move and thought, now he's coming, and prepared himself for a dash. If I can dodge past these blamed prongs, I might be able to take him by the throat, he reflected, without, however, feeling much confident in himself. But to his great relief, Savala's purpose was simply to conceal the fork in the hold, in such a manner that the handle of it just reached the edge of the afterdeck. In that position, it was, of course, invisible to anybody coming from the shore. Savala had made up his mind that the lieutenant was out of the tartane. He had wandered away along the shore, and would probably be back in a moment. Meantime, it had occurred to him to see if he could discover anything compromising in the cabin. He did not take the fork down with him, because in that confined space it would have been useless, and rather a source of embarrassment than otherwise, should the returning lieutenant find him there. 
He cast a circular glance around the basin and then prepared to go down. Every movement of his was watched by Simons. He guessed Sevilla's purpose by his movements and said to himself, Here's my only chance, and not a second to be lost either. Directly, Sevilla turned his back on the forepart of the tartan in order to go down the little cabin ladder. Simons crawled out from his concealment. He ran along the hold on all fours for fear the other should turn his head round before disappearing below. But directly he judged that the man had touched bottom. He stood on his feet and, catching hold of the main rigging, swung himself on the afterdeck and, as it were in the same movement, flung himself on the doors of the cabin, which came together with a crash. How he could secure them he had not thought, but as a matter of fact he saw the padlock hanging on a staple on one side. The key was in it, and it was a matter of a fraction of a second to secure the doors effectually. Almost simultaneously with the crash of the cabin door, there was a shrill exclamation of surprise down there, and just as Simons had turned the key, the man he had trapped made an effort to break out. That, however, did not disturb Simons. He knew the strength of that door. His first action was to get possession of the stable fork. At once he felt himself a match for any single man, or even two men, unless they had firearms. He had no hope, however, of being able to resist the soldiers, and really had no intention of doing so. He expected to see them appear at any moment, led by that confounded marinero. As to what the farmer man had come for on board the tartane, he had not the slightest doubt about it. Not being troubled by too much imagination, it seemed to him obvious that it was to kill an Englishman and for nothing else. "'Well, I'm jiggered,' he exclaimed mentally. "'The damned savage. I haven't done anything to him. They must be a murderous lot hereabouts.' He looked anxiously up the slope. He would have welcomed the arrival of soldiers. He wanted more than ever to be made a proper prisoner." but a profound stillness reigned on the shore, and a most absolute silence down below in the cabin. Absolute. No word, no movement. The silence of the grave. He's scared to death, thought Simons, hitting in his simplicity on the exact truth. It would serve him jolly well right if I went down there and ran him through with that thing. I would do it for a shilling, too. He was getting angry. It occurred to him also that there was some wine down there, too. He discovered he was very thirsty, and he felt rather faint. He sat down on the little skylight to think the matter over while awaiting the soldiers. He even gave a friendly thought to peril himself. He was quite aware that he could have gone ashore and hidden himself for a time, but that meant in the end being hunted among the rocks and certainly captured, with the additional risk of getting a musket ball through his body. The first gun of the Amelia lifted him to his feet as though he had been snatched up by the hair of his head. He intended to give a resounding cheer, but produced only a feeble gurgle in his throat. His ship was talking to him. They hadn't given him up. At the second report, he scrambled ashore with the agility of a cat. In fact, with so much agility that he had a fit of giddiness. After it passed off, he returned deliberately to the tartan to get hold of the stable fork. Then, trembling with emotion, he staggered off quietly and resolutely with the only purpose of getting down to the seashore. He knew that as long as he kept downhill he would be all right. The ground in this part being a smooth, rocky surface, and Simon's being barefooted, he passed at no great distance from peril without being heard. When he got on rough ground, he used the stable fork for his staff. Slowly as he moved, he was not really strong enough to be sure-footed. 
Ten minutes later, or so Peril, lying ensconced behind a bush, heard the noise of a rolling stone far away in the direction of the cove. Instantly, the patient Peril got on his feet and started towards the cove himself. Perhaps he would have smiled at the importance and gravity of the affair in which he was engaged, had not given all his thoughts a serious cast. Pursuing a higher path than the one followed by Simon's, he had presently the satisfaction of seeing the fugitive, made very noticeable by the white bandages about his head, engaged in the last part of the steep descent. No nurse could have watched with more anxiety the adventure of a little boy than peril, the progress of his former prisoner. He was very glad to perceive that he had had the sense to take what looked like the tartane's boat-hook to help himself with. As Simon's figure sank lower and lower in his descent, Peril moved on, step by step, till at last he saw him from above sitting down on the seashore, looking very forlorn and lonely, with his bandaged head between his hands. Instantly Peril sat down too, protected by a projecting rock, and it is safe to say that with that there came a complete cessation of all sound and movement on the lonely head of the peninsula for a full half-hour. Peril was not in doubt as to what was going to happen. He was as certain that the corvette's boat or boats were now on the way to the cove as though he had seen them leave the side of the Amelia. But he began to get a little impatient. He wanted to see the end of this episode. Most of the time he was watching Simon's. Sacre tête dieu, he thought. He has gone to sleep. Indeed, Simon's immobility was so complete that he might have been dead from his exertions. Only Peril had a conviction that his once youthful chum was not the sort of person that dies easily. The part of the cove he had reached was all right for Peril's purpose. But it would have been quite easy for a boat or boats to fail to notice Simon's, and the consequence of that would be that the English would probably land in several parties for a search, discover the tartane. Peril shuddered. Suddenly he made out a boat just clear of the eastern point of the cove. Mr. Bolt had been hugging the coast and progressing very slowly, according to his instructions, till he had reached the edge of the point's shadow, where it lay ragged and black on the moonlit water. Peril could see the oars rise and fall. Then another boat glided into view. Peril's alarm for his tartane grew intolerable. Wake up, animal, wake up, he mumbled through his teeth. Slowly they glided on and the first cutter was on the point of passing by the man on the shore, when Peril was relieved by the hail of, Boat ahoy! reaching him faintly where he knelt leaning forward, an absorbed spectator. He saw the boat heading for Simons, who was standing up now and making desperate signs with both arms. Then he saw him dragged in over the bows, the boat back out, and then both of them tossed oars and floated side by side on the sparkling water of the cove. Peril got up from his knees. They had their man now but perhaps they would persist in landing, since there must have been some other purpose at first in the mind of the captain of the English corvette. This suspense did not last long. Peril saw the oars fall in the water, and in a very few minutes the boats, pulling round, disappeared one after another behind the eastern point of the cove. That's done, muttered Peril to himself. I will never see the silly hardhead again. He had a strange notion that those English boats had carried off something belonging to him, not a man, but a part of his own life, the sensation of a regained touch with the far-off days in the Indian Ocean. He walked down quickly as if to examine the spot from which Testadura had left the soil of France. He was in a hurry now to get back to the farmhouse and meet Lieutenant Rial, who would be due back from Toulon. 
the way by the cove was as short as any other. When he got down, he surveyed the empty shore and wondered at a feeling of emptiness within himself. While walking up towards the foot of the ravine, he saw an object lying on the ground. It was a stable fork. He stood over it, asking himself, how on earth did this thing come here? As though he had been too surprised to pick it up. Even after he had done so, he remained motionless, meditating on it. He connected it with some activity of Sevilla, since he was the man to whom it belonged, but that was no sort of explanation of its presence on that spot, unless... Could he have drowned himself, thought Peril, looking at the smooth and luminous water of the cove? It could give him no answer. Then at arm's length he contemplated his find. At last he shook his head, shouldered the fork, and with slow steps continued on his way. End of chapter 13